What's going on, folks? Thanks for hitting that download button and checking out a brand new episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, your one-stop shop for toys, tech, and talk with some assembly required. I'm your host, Rich, and if this is the first time you're checking out an episode, first of all, welcome. Second, a bit about what we do here. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and just awesome folks that are on our radar and discuss the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they use to run their business, create their content, and most importantly, be more productive. Now, when it comes to the toys aspect of this podcast, we like to use a more generalized definition of toys and not relegated to the usual action figures, Legos, and all of the typical things you think of when it comes to toys. We like to look at toys in a more general sense, meaning uh, those guitar picks you collect, that knife collection, uh, maybe you collect ATVs, maybe you collect jet skis, all of that is considered toys, and we like to embrace that in the more generalized sense. Number one, it helps to break up a lot of the entrepreneurship and business talk of the podcast, but more importantly, it helps us get to know our guests on a more personal level. Now, with that out of the way, let's get into some housekeeping and kick off this week's episode. First off, I hope those of you that um, were looking for an episode two weeks ago, please accept uh, my apologies. Actually, let me let me rephrase that. Two weeks ago, I owed you folks an episode and um, things got a little crazy and um, I'll keep the story time brief. Uh, I have a three-year-old daughter. She is in pre-K and we had this wonderful thing called a COVID scare. And I don't have to tell any of you that are dealing with this across the country and across the world that it is very, very crazy out there. But it's more crazy when you're in an environment with small children because like anything else, there's not much you can do for children under the age of five when they get sick with this stuff. So it was a massive, massive thing. Um, a student tested positive, And of course, the school notified us uh, shortly before I picked up my daughter. And of course, she was a close contact, which resulted in the school being closed, everything being closed and everybody in the house kind of on pins and needles while we waited. Now, of course, we could have gone to get tested, which definitely came up, but we were more concerned, obviously, about my daughter. Strange things what st- uh, excuse me, strange thing about it was that the Friday we were notified, she was fine. Saturday, she was fine. But then Sunday, she started um, displaying a low-grade fever. So, of course, we were a little concerned. Uh, then we noticed she had a fever Monday as well. So we called our pediatrician. Uh, shout out to the doc. She knows who she is. And um, she said, hey, let's do uh, telemedicine and we'll figure it out. Did a telemedicine. Of course, right away, they're like, oh, just do a drive through COVID test and we'll go from there. But my daughter being three and just going through the motions, I said, you know what? Let's just not jump to the conclusion that it's a COVID issue right away. Let's make sure it's not an ear infection because my daughter suffers from them. So you know, we said it to our pediatrician and she accommodated us again. Shout out to the doc for helping us out. And we got in there. My daughter got checked out and, you know, as protocol, she got a COVID test. A rapid test was negative, And then we got the PCR test, which is usually, you know, more accurate. And, um, you know, we played the waiting game. But in the midst of that, we had her ears checked and she had a little fluid in one ear. So. Clearly something was going on there and they said, listen, just it's probably 
her body fighting this this possible ear infection just keep an eye on it so you know we watched and waited and you know with everything going on across the world you know pcr tests you'd usually have the results in 24 hours but unfortunately it was a waiting game and as a result of that obviously i had to quarantine my wife had to quarantine uh people in my house definitely had to quarantine and the funny thing is my my older sister who goes to a special needs program for adults, her program actually was closed because of an outbreak. So she was home for two weeks. My daughter's school was closed. It was just crazy, but knock on wood, uh, everything came out. Okay. Uh, my daughter clearly, uh, was fighting the ear infection and, um, everything was good. So she went back to school and we just went back to whatever we consider normal at this point, which, you know, some of you, regardless of your ideologies, whether for, against, pre, pro, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and, and politicize it or debate it, but it's just a really weird time for this stuff. So obviously worrying about that and trying to put my focus there, obviously took my focus away from the episode at hand, but obviously I'm not here to make excuses. Just as always, just being transparent with you folks, keeping you up to speed on what's going on in the world. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what went down. And I wanted to update everyone accordingly. As for this week's guest, um, I'm not, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to do the big intro for the guest because I think that the interview is going to do a great job of that, but I do want to shout out the underdogs community. It is a community that was formed by Noah Kagan as a result of his podcast. And the thing about it is it's a Slack group. Uh, if you haven't checked out Noah Kagan's podcast, please do, especially if you're an entrepreneur and just looking for ways to level up your business, whether it's uh, from a technology standpoint, a mental standpoint, or you just need some good old fashioned advice. Uh, Noah Kagan is aces. And uh, he started a Slack group for people, like-minded folks, entrepreneurs, and I'm always weird with joining groups, whether it's on Facebook or anything else, because it always starts off well. It always starts off, you know, everybody's like, rah, rah, yeah. And then as days and weeks pass, the engagement in the group just dwindles down to nothing. But the thing about the underdogs group that I like is it's a lot of entrepreneurs, people that are looking to level up their game, just trying to connect with like minded folks, whether it's to uh, collaborate on things, work together, get advice, share milestones, share victories, whatever. And I was like, man, I don't know. Let me, let me give it a shot. And like I said, I liked what Noah Kagan did on his podcast. So I joined the group and connected with a lot of great folks and got a lot of really cool, actionable advice. Hell, I had one of the underdogs help me out with my resume, helping me level that up. And it got me a, a great, um, it helped actually me get the podcast teaching uh, contract position I had for a little bit. So um, it truly, truly grateful to the group. And I really wanted to express that appreciation by showcasing uh, and spotlighting a lot of the great people in the underdogs group who are doing amazing, amazing things, whether it's new software, new services, new forms of content, um, creating different types of dialogue. These are awesome, awesome folks. And I felt that their stories not only needed to be heard, but needed to be shared with this audience, because this audience is the same kind of folks, people that are on the grind, whether it's growing their business or leveling up their business or trying to jumpstart their business or 
more importantly, just trying to connect with other people that are in the same struggles they are. So uh, over the coming weeks, maybe the coming months, depending on their schedules, you're going to hear from a, a variety of different people that are part of the underdogs group. And you're going to learn about their stories and more importantly, of course, the toys and tech of their trade. So with that said, I want to in advance thank the underdogs that are going to be part of this podcast in the coming weeks. And I truly hope you appreciate and draw inspiration from their stories. Let's turn it over to this week's guests and learn about the toys and tech of their trade. Kicking off our first set of interviews showcasing my fellow friends and colleagues from Noah Kagan's Underdogs, we're going to be kicking it off with John Hill, better known as John Small Mountain. Uh, John is a salesman, entrepreneur, content creator, and a slew of many other things. And we're going to dig into his story, plus, of course, the toys and tech of his trade. John, how's it going? Really good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Slew is a uh, slew is a very appropriate word for what I do. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because when when I joined this community, and um, you know, props to to Noah for kicking it off. The yeah. the thing about it was, I think you were one of the first people I connected with. Um, I think you had messaged me just you were you were curious about podcasting. You had a, a, a bunch of questions and. The thing that got me about the group was the genuine curiosity about all of the people that were part of it. And more importantly, the fact that a lot of us were dealing with a lot of different entrepreneurial struggles. I mean, in, in your case, you were a, a B2B salesperson, uh, you know, and the thing about it was you kind of hit a bit of a wall and then you pivoted a bit until you found a uh, a, a role that kind of gave you some personal satisfaction. So I kind of want to start at the beginning uh, with your with your early with your early beginnings of your sales to your B two B career. So let's start there. Tell me a little bit about what got you into sales, and is that something that you wanted to do, or did you just end up there and said, "Hey, I'm good at this. Let me just keep going." You know, I don't think it's one of those things that any kid is excited about the prospect of, right? Like um, I told my dad when I was a kid that I wanted to be an attorney and uh, because I was thinking, okay, this is going to be awesome. And my dad tells me, well, it's better to be the screwer than the screwee. I'm like seven or eight years old, right? So the, this was like a very weird thing. Um, so it wasn't ever a topic of discussion that I was going to be in sales. Um, it was just something that kind of happened. Uh, I came home from the army and started to wait tables because I wasn't sure what I was going to be when I grew up. And just found a couple of people who trained me in a way that just allowed me to get it right. So much about knowledge transfer and training is so reliant on the person doing the coaching and the person who is being coached. Right. And if you don't align those two people, it's very hard to get anything done. It's hard to get people to buy into a sales concept. It's hard to get people to follow you if, they, if you're selling something that requires a lot of trust. And I got to follow some people who treat serving and waiting tables with a lot of focus and attention. And a friend of mine who was one of the best people that I coached under, as far as a server, he would just ask for everything. He would just say, hey, don't fill up on appetizers because dessert is going to be rocking. And so we'd walk away and say, why wouldn't you 
why wouldn't you want them to get appetizers? And he's like, I want them to get appetizers. I just don't want them to fill up on an appetizer. And if I don't tell them that we have a rock and dessert tray, they might not even ask to see it. And so like this kind of blew my mind, right? So then I just become the guy who offers everything, right? You want a margarita? Sure. Do you want an extra shot? Because like an extra shot is a little bit more. So that adds to my ticket total. Most people tip off the ticket total. So just by offering more to people, I was outselling other servers on the floor. And it wasn't because I was persuasive. It wasn't because I was pushing people or forcing these things. It was just because I was asking, right? And so serving the lifestyle of that is you work nights, you work weekends. And I really, really, really didn't like that. So I decided to make a move into sales. Did that for a while. But it was retail sales. I was selling for uh, T-Mobile and was selling cell phones. And it was my first real sales role, right? I had a quota, had to hit certain goals, had to fill certain buckets. And just by being the guy who asked lots of questions and, and just who showed up, like I was pretty successful. So that continued. I had some other roles. And then my first B2B role was where I hit the wall. Um, I was selling medical devices. And doctors are very hard people to sell to. And I almost quit sales completely because the person that I was working under, who is a very good friend, we still work together now. He's on, he's, he's another one of the hosts on our podcast. He can't teach in a way that I can learn from. Right. So it was endlessly frustrating to, I mean, I'll put in the work. I just need some direction. And his manner of coaching was just go try it because he's an instinctual person. He just operates off of instinct. I don't operate off of instinct. I operate off the of process. Right. So if you can't give me a process, I'm just kind of stuck and being wrong is such friction for me. I hate being wrong. And, and if I can go shortcut my learning process by asking someone some questions, I'd much rather go do that. Historically though, that's led to friction on teams that I'm on because I ask a lot of questions because I need that clarity, but it always comes across as John's not a team player. Right. So in that role, I'm struggling trying to figure it out. And a friend of mine from Kung Fu was like, hey, you should come meet my sales coach. And in a, in a situation where I'm teaching him Kung Fu, because my Kung Fu coach had taught me enough that he trusted me to teach other people, I say, I don't need to come meet your coach. This is insane. <laughs> I just need more doors, right? right. All, the, all the stupid ego in the world. And um, I decided, well, that's not very Kung Fu of me, right? Because Kung Fu is, is as much a lifestyle and a philosophy and an approach to living as much as it is a fighting method. Absolutely. And so here I am in Kung Fu like loving the pain, the process, the improvement, these little bitty edges of improvement that we're all so focused on. And then this thing that makes my money, I'm not willing to go talk to someone who could potentially help me. Like how absurd is that? So I had to sit with that for a little bit. And then I went in and I met this coach and he completely blew my mind, showed me there was so much more to communication than just showing up and asking questions. And that was the beginning of the change for me. And, um, went on and did some personality assessments that really kind of showed me who I was on paper, which really kind of cemented the idea that I was trying to learn from people who don't teach in a manner that I'm going to easily grasp. And so this coach was trying to talk me out of like staying in sales. Like, John, this is why you struggle in selling and this and this and this and this and this. And it was all true. But up until that moment, up until that very moment, Rich, I thought I was the only person who experienced those specific issues. Right. So he shows me who I am on paper, and I just realize I'm learning from the wrong people. I got to go find people who teach in a way that I can learn from. And that was the beginning. That was okay. Cool. Here's this. Well, let's go get to the bottom of it. Still haven't found the bottom. That's that's a hell of an awakening and a and a and a very a very unique journey 
and I want to I want to backtrack a bit because you you said you had you had joined the army, and um, I want to kind of unpack that a little further. You were you was was anyone in your family in the service, or was this something that you consciously did on your own? Was there kind of a of a drive there that the recruiter just show up and it sounded cool? Because <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I as as an '80s baby, I remember when I was in high school, the recruiter would come in, you know, oh, right yeah. around when you were seventeen. They'd oh, be yeah. like, you could see the world, all this stuff. And I remember the recruiter oh, came, offered offered like the coolest thing. I come home, I'm like, ma, and she's like, no, you're not, <laughs> you know, like like it didn't even <laughs> I I didn't even finish the sentence. She's like, oh no, you're not. So I'm curious about that aspect of your journey. Um, it, it's a, it's a very interesting point for me because I'm not, I'm not great for the military, at least not the way that I did it. Um, I went to school, high school with a couple of people who were very focused on military. Like, like it was the only thing they were ever going to do. Um, and a friend of mine, he went straight from um, high school to the Naval Academy he actually went on to be Barack Obama's Marine One pilot. Like wow. that's how hardcore this guy was, right? His name's uh, John. Super nice guy. I won't say his last name, but uh, super super rad dude. And another friend of mine who I was very good friends with, he just knew he was gonna gonna join the Marine Corps. And I was on that college track kind of mm-hmm. right? like like I didn't know what I was gonna do for a long time. I wanted to be a teacher, but right around that junior year of high school, everyone started to get very fixated on money, right. And the roles and why, why we're going to college and everything. And so I was very excited about being just like a teacher. And then a friend of mine, a guy named Kevin, who has got a couple of businesses now, he goes, you know, they don't make any money. (laughs) And I'm like, well, if they don't make any money, I don't want to do that. And he goes, yeah, you should do computer science. And I was like, okay, cool. So finish high school, go the original plan was to go to a different college, but it was a little too far away. My mom was asking me to stay a little bit closer. So I stayed a little bit closer and it, it just wasn't, it was, it was too transactional. I think is what it was. I went to a school that functions very, very much as like a, not like a, like, like it's a full university, but the way that it's done and ran is that it's kind of between a junior college and like a full lifestyle college university kind of deal. So I would go to school and then I would leave. So I wasn't really building relationships. There was no real community for me. Right. So when, you know, struggle happened, which it does when you're a kid and you make terrible decisions, which I was doing, it was, okay, I need to go get a job because I'm also not really feeling any kind of traction. Like I like anthropology. I like communication. I like the technical stuff I was learning, but like nothing was really pulling me so much that I had this kind of burning desire. I was hanging out with these two brothers. One of them had already gone through basic training and the other one was my age. We graduated the same year. And his brother was younger than us. And we were seeing his brother and he was so driven and just on it and, you know, regimented and everything. We weren't doing anything. So me and his brother were both like, maybe we should go do this together. So we joined at the same time as reservists, shipped out. And uh, yeah, I did that. He and his brother both ended up going active duty because for some people, once you're in that, it's all you want. right? Right. So a lot of people will kind of you know, move up into that world more, you know, they'll go from reservist or national guard to active duty because they just find it and they love it. I was not that person. I went the other way because what, what's really crazy is as a reservist, I was spending time waiting tables and that's one culture of people. And then I would go to drill weekend and I'm hanging out with these like military people. And so these, these communities of people were very, very different. And I kind of felt stuck between them for a very long time. Right. So what I talk to people now about is like the only great reason to join the military is because you have a desire to serve. Like college money is not enough. A bonus is not enough. 
wanting to see the world, in my opinion, is not enough. You want, you have to want to serve your country, or else it's not worth it. You you mentioned something interesting that someone said to you about, oh, teachers don't make any money, and it's funny. It it, it reminded me of. I remember I wanted to be a vet, and I went through high school with studying animal science, all of this stuff. By the mm-hmm. time I got to the end of uh, to the end, and I got my animal science high school diploma, I was like, "Yeah, ma, I want to be a vet." And she was, and my mother was like, "Vets don't make any money," and it's amazing. Huh? Yeah, they make lots of money, don't they? Well, I, I yeah, I mean, I feel that they do, but you know what it is when when you when you look at it from that perspective, like. She, much like like you were saying, wanted me to be a lawyer. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so she was like, you know, you should. My, her rationale was because I like to argue and I like to debate things and I ask a bunch of questions. So you should be a lawyer. And I'm like, uh, OK, cool. So, <laughs> you know, graduate high school, try and get into criminal justice college. I remember I took like the, the first the first class was about like um, criminology. And we were mm-hmm. learning about like gangs and I just got like sucked in and I'm like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to do whatever lets me know about all this crazy stuff because it was so impactful and so insightful. Obviously, she got sick yeah. and I ended up dropping out. But I wanted to just circle that little phrase right there about hearing, oh, you don't make that doesn't make enough money. Now that you've been an entrepreneur and you've done so much. Does that phrase, and, and I say this because obviously I, I cater this to different people that are in different stages, do, do phrases like that help or hurt when you're trying to figure out who you want to be, in your opinion? Ooh, that's a really great question. Um, man, that's a really great question. I think, I think that people need the depth right? Uh, because they need to know what they're getting into, right? I mean, teaching, I know, I know a lot of teachers, right? And I know, I know a lot of teachers who were burned out, not from dealing with the students, it's from dealing with the parents of the students who mm-hmm. are not really paying attention and they're therefore entitled and stuff like this. So I think, I think the, I, I don't think that walking into any, any situation, any role, any thing with just sheer headed bulldog approach, is very helpful. I think it kind of like limits your ability to kind of pick your head up and look around, make strategic decisions. So I think people need to research, but I, but I also think that making the decision purely just on money is incredibly limiting because there's a thousand different ways to make money, right? And there's a thousand different ways to have a little side hustle that generates a little bit of extra income. So I think people should be more focused on doing the work that they love to do in their, in their zone of genius and then look for other ways because the idea that like your company is just always going to be there. They're always going to hire you. I mean, after COVID and after the past two years, I think most people need to kind of like look at their companies a little bit differently. And like, maybe they're not going to be here, right? Maybe I need to be a little bit more in control and have some other lanes and things that can make me income. So that way, you know, I mean, I know people who had been in roles for 18 years and then they got laid off at the beginning of COVID, right? So two years away from being able to have, you know, the, the retirement benefits and stuff like that. And then you're laid off and it's like, you know, there's a lot to this. So looking at it from just one angle, just the money I think is limiting. And I think you're, I think people will talk themselves into doing lots of terrible things that they don't really love in the name of money, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that sentiment. I also am inclined to also throw in generational because I also feel that 
and and you may you know you may have had a different upbringing so you may look at it differently but i also feel that our parents and even our grandparents had this conditioning where you work you work you work you work until you're dead so to speak and then you retire and then by the time you retire you can't do a damn thing <laughs> because you time has passed you by that at that point you're just motivated to not do anything that even things that would bring you joy become work do you agree with that man um, ooh, I think, I think that, I think that you can find a way to be intrinsically motivated to do anything you would like to do. It, uh, I think that once you become really aware of yourself and you know who you are, um, what, whether that's going through like an assessment process like I did, or just doing lots of self inner work through journaling, meditation or therapy or something else, once you really know who you are and you can look for the commonalities for things that get you excited in other areas and then build those into things that might be a little harder for you to approach, then it just becomes something you can do, right? It's not something um, that you have to get ramped up for, right? I Being in the Army, there's a lot of motivational kind of raw, raw stuff it's talked about, right? And you kind of have to talk yourself into that. Like, like you know, I call it brainwashing, you know, to be kind of funny about it, but it is also kind of true. Like the whole point of the Army is to take people who are not killers and turn them into killers, right? right. Like that's fundamentally what you're there for. So everything is done in that light, right? You have, to, you have to walk around singing songs about how your girlfriend is is at home and she's, you know, screwing around on you just yep. to get used to the idea that you might get Dear John, right? And so then people start to get these Dear John letters. And since they'd already been thinking about it, it wasn't the world crushing thing that it could be, right? So that to me was very like interesting, like how purposeful the army can be with their training of just subjecting you to little stuff and then gradually ramping up the intensity to really see how much you can handle. That to me is really, really fascinating. So I think, I think people talk themselves into bad positions very, very easily, especially in the entrepreneurial realm. Um, that's where accountability comes in, having good mentors, having good people around you. So, yeah, don't like you got to have a, a sounding board or else you're going to talk yourself down paths that are just going to be really rough. It's it's interesting that you mentioned um, I, I, a phrase I like to use, uh, desensitize the disappointment. Um, you know how you were how you were uh, illustrating what's going on with with, you know, the army's conditioning. And mm -hmm. I think that a lot of that also ties into what you were saying before about just finding who you are and that self-assessment. And a lot yeah. of times people, he, I, and, and I think as with men, especially, and again, you, you may, you may agree or, or not, we, we we're, we're conditioned to not feel anything. I yeah. think we've, we've reached a tipping point now where I see more of my, my peers, my fellow entrepreneurs talking about mental health days and therapy and journaling mm -hmm. and meditation and you know, I know, I know for a fact you met you 10, 20 years ago, you would have mentioned that people would be like, ah, oh, come on, you know, you don't need to, yeah. you don't need to write your feelings in a book. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting how many of us, they, we, we truly are powerless in that department. And I think that's where like groups like the underdogs group and things like that. And coaches, as you said, are, are vital because a lot of these challenges you know, our families are always going to quote unquote support us, but they're never going to understand us. Yeah, man, 
that's that's the nail on the head. And the, the way that you said that just just right then is indicative of someone who has been through it, right? Like I'm the black sheep in my family because of the things that I do, right? Right. Um, the fact that I published a book, my sister thinks that I just have to be rich. Like I have to be Tony Robbins level <laughs> of successful because, because we have a book out. Yep. And it's, it's like, that's, that's not how this works. Right. Nope. So the, the outside view of selling is such like a weird thing. Right. But the, 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 the outside view of entrepreneurialism is also just as weird because it's still selling, right? Which is the, the thing that I try to talk to people about in the underdog community because people are saying, well, I want to help. Okay, great. They have to buy from you in order to help. Mm-hmm. What can to. you do for me? Yep. Exactly. And there's a lot of hiding going on in like networking and selling and stuff like this. So this thing of like, I can't take a no. So let me fabricate a reason to have a conversation with you so that way you have to say yes. And the groups like the underdogs are so great because you get so many different opinions, right? You can float any idea, any design and get some real time feedback from people. So that way you're not talking yourself into it or out of it or things like that. There's this line in poker that says, if you think long, you think wrong, right? Yep. Which just means that your gut instinct is usually the right one. Same thing with, with building a side hustle or building a company, right? Like, you don't really need to go do the whole branding thing before you have the first couple of clients. I like I went that way. I went and got some branding and stuff like this and invested in all these things. Thankfully, I had a network and my first couple of clients were easy to get and close and bring on. But more people are focused on the wrong parts of the problem than are focused on like activities that are going to lead them to their goals. So with that with that said, and I want to frame this a little, a little bit more general, um, people people that are that are looking to become a force in their particular space. What do you feel are, I guess, I guess the three core tenets in your opinion that they should focus on? Because at the end of the day, like you just said, everything is sales. So what do you feel are three core things that you personally experienced that would carry over to other businesses now that you've been involved in so many things? The, Wow, that's a great question. Um, very good question. Dang. Um, I think that the first thing that people do, and this is a double-sided sword, right? Because you have you you have to have a little bit of this, but we get a little too too focused on our method being the best method, right? To be a consultant, to be someone who is working with clients, you need to have a method that's going to help them be better, or else they don't really need to hire you, right? Um, so. The first thing that we find with everybody is we're all a little too fixated on our juice being the best juice, right? So there's no real appreciation for other people in the same space who have a different method, a different process, and being able to see the value in that. What I coach people on is go talk to everybody in your space who you compete against, who you lose business to, who you don't know, who you think might be doing the same thing, and go figure out why their stuff is different than your stuff at like a friendly level, not a competitor level, mm-hmm. a friendly level, because someone is going to see value in their method and they might not see value in yours. And the better grab you have of that conceptually, the easier your sales conversations are going to go, right? There's another guy in my space who does something very similar to me, but his method is very different. They're going to go out, they're going to hire four 
commission-only salespeople. They're going to put them all on the phone. And the person who's going to win is the person that they hire for you. I hate this idea. I don't, I don't work in that way, but I can see why a lot of people would see value in that, especially with how sales is talked about, right? And how people are concerned about, I, if my salesperson isn't here working, I'm not really sure what they're doing and things like this. So I get that some people see value in that, but that's not how I work. So if you're going to see value in that, I need to check an assumption to make sure that you're going to want to see value in how I work. Because if you don't see value in how I work, I should tell you no. Right. I should point you to that other person who's going to do it the way that you're going to see value in. And that means having a mindset of enough abundance that I don't need this deal to close. That's the real hard part. We get so excited as salespeople and entrepreneurs at the prospect of helping or closing a deal that we get in our own way in the conversation more often than not. Sometimes, sometimes you have to fire your customer, so to speak. Sometimes, it yeah. just, sometimes it's just not a right fit. But, uh, before, before we move into some other stuff, I wanted to ask, do you mm-hmm. feel that like Wolf of Wall Street, Boiler Room, all of these films that have glamorized the selling process have given people this false sense of security? When it comes to approaching sales, you just mentioned something very interesting about, hey, we're going to put four people on the phone and whoever's the best wins. It, you know, it sounds very, going back to what I was saying before, very Wolf of Wall Street, um, that approach. Do you feel that that those films and, and those stories that have glamorized that are doing more harm than good? Ooh, that's a really great question. Um, man. I, I, so Boiler Room is one of my favorite movies on the planet. Like, I love that movie. And I also like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, not so much for, like, the archetypes of selling that it pushes forward, because I do think that that is not helpful. But you get this really great view. The, that high-pressure approach to selling works in certain areas, right? If you have a product or something that you can put in their hand that you know is going to, like, do what it needs them to do, there's nothing wrong with being like, hey, look, you should just take a shot at this. Right. You can return it if you don't like it. Right. But in a service driven thing, whether you're providing a service or whether you're doing conceptual brain power for someone as far as like strategy or consulting, you really need to take a little bit more time because putting extra pressure on the work. Oftentimes isn't worth it. It's just easier to say, hey, I don't think that I do what you're looking for. So maybe we should put this thing down. Do you know anybody else who might be looking for this in the way that we do it that I should be talking to? Right. right. You can say no to someone, ask for a referral and then move on as opposed to talking yourself into this place of, well, we close this deal. And then if you're lucky enough to have a team, you get, you go back to the team and this is what it sounds like. All right, guys, we can't lose this one. Pressure's on. Right. And now you're pressuring your team because you sold a deal that you shouldn't have sold. So having that clarity of how do you do it? How do other people do it? And being able to navigate a conversation about what does that person really want is going to keep you from selling bad deals, you know, inviting a bunch of churn or bringing people on that you have to fire. You know, I mean, this whole firing a client is kind of this rite of passage of being of being an entrepreneur, starting your own business, you know, and things like that. But you shouldn't have to do it a whole lot if you're if you're learning from these things. Okay, why did I have to fire that client? Well, they wanted to talk all the time. Okay, great. Why is that a problem? Well, we're not built to be 24-7 available. Okay, great. Do we need to update our marketing? Do we need to update our sales process, our conversational process to kind of draw some awareness around that so that we don't end up in the same spot that we're in right now? Right. 
because at that point you put yourself in a situation where you're kind of working backwards. Now you've created this expectation because you're meeting that person's demands of 24 yes. hour access. And then what that person's going to do is, Hey, this guy's great. You can get him at any time. And then the other person's going to come in with that preconceived notion. And you're saying to yourself, well, damn, we're not available 24 hours. You have to set the expectations. You're a hundred percent right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the number one thing that I tell with everybody is that if you don't do enough discovery, enough research about what this person really wants, you are hoping that the way that you deliver and the, and the expectations that you deliver meets theirs. And it doesn't ever, it doesn't ever like what, what people hold in their mind when they're talking to a salesperson is often, how do I get away? How do I make sure that I don't have to commit to anything right now? They're not concerned about, let's make sure that this person I'm talking to really knows what I want because they, they just assume that it's all the same. Makes right? sense. And so when they, when they can assume that it's all the same, why would they ever pay anything more than just the cheapest dollar available? That's, that's what a commodity is, right? So as a salesperson, your job is to show them the depth, show them how deep these wells are, the, how much difference there is between whatever it is, right? I'm not even talking about like someone who runs like SEO versus like, like pay-per-click advertising. All those things are very different. There's a huge difference between organic and uh, local SEO, right? So maybe there's depth in there. Maybe your process is around one of the else. And when, when you know exactly how you do it and you know exactly how you don't, you can refer to other people if it's a bad fit, which keeps you from having to work with people who are not going to be great fits. And also it just makes you a better guide, which is really the goal, right? Can you build enough trust with someone that they will work through the problem with you right there, even though you're a salesperson, so that way you can get the clarity? Yes or no. That's the goal. I I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about the work that you are doing in the sales right. space, because one of the things you were saying before is about just being transparent, just giving people the goods, no, no gotchas, no secrets. So I want to talk about adapted growth and sure the work that you're doing there and you know for for those not familiar just talk us through what adaptive what adapted growth does and how it's helping people in the space awesome thank you so much um adapted growth is equal parts sales coaching and training and data-driven sales consulting um there's a selling is a full contact emotionally riddled role right you got to take a lot of rejection you got to deal with the outward view. Sometimes people don't treat salespeople with the most respect, you know, and things like this. So it can be kind of a brutal role and you have to have thick skin is, is how it's talked about. But when you have clarity about who you're really trying to help, like who is in that bucket of people that only you can help? Like you can help lots of people. I can help lots of people improve their sales rates, you know, their close rates and stuff. But there's a group of people who can't learn from anybody else. And when you can zoom in on that and have that kind of clarity, it shifts from let me try to talk everybody into it to let's figure out as quickly as we can if I can help you. Because if not, let's put it down and move on. I don't want to waste your time. I don't think you want to waste mine. Let's figure it out. Right. right? So really giving people frameworks questions, little bitty things like that. So that way they're saving time as salespeople who have a lot of other things to do because sales is a productivity problem as much as it is a persuasion problem. Makes sense. I mean, I think that, well, I'll be honest, you know, I was, you, you mentioned something that resonated with me about 
you know, being at a place 18 years and then being laid off because that's pretty much what happened to me. Mm -hmm. I um, worked for my organization. I was about to hit the 20 year mark. Um, The company had gone through numerous um, uh, evolutions. It was prepping for sale. Um, They moved the company to Atlanta. I remained a remote employee. And then, you know, May 1st, I get the the Microsoft Teams message like, oh, it's HR. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why is HR wanting to talk to me? And the rest is the rest is history. And the funny mm-hmm. thing, the funny thing about that is that when you when you do that, you're kind of pigeonholed into this role now because you've done it for 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 18 years. And when you're trying to crawl out and trying to find something new, I was like, I don't want to do sales. I don't so it, because I just know that I'm not, quote unquote, good at selling something. But you framed it in such a way that for anyone who's listening, we're doing sales all the time. Yes. All the time. Everything, all everything, time. everything is a pitch. Everything is a, everything is a sale. I mean, to invite you on this podcast was a pitch, you know, it was like, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And this is what we're going to yeah. talk about. We'd love to have you on. And here we are. So w- with that said, do, do you think more people should get their toes into the sales space to be able to just be better overall as performers? Because a lot of times, like, it's like when people say, oh, I never want to work at Burger King. But mm-hmm. you know what? There's lessons you can take from working at Burger King. Yeah. Sure. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. The job is probably going to be soul sucking and brutal, but you're yep. going to learn certain facets that will carry over to many other things. Do you feel that way about sales? I mean, so I'm a little bit biased here because of who I am and what I do. Of course. Um, but I mean, I it's such a weird thing. I, so I, I have a stutter and I've had it ever since I was a kid. I've been in speech therapy from kindergarten all the way up until eighth grade In eighth grade. I ha- I got a brand new speech therapist or coach who gave me some technique, some things to think about in my speech that allowed me to kind of work past my stutter. So as a kid, I told my mom that I wanted to be a comedian and she was like, maybe find something else to do <laughs> because of the stutter. Um, and so the fact that I, can be here and do these things, right? I read my own audiobook. I'm 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 on a podcast. I do lots of Zoom calls, right? You can you can train yourself to do anything. Now, um, the fascinating thing is, I used to say that everybody should spend a stint waiting tables, right? Before the army, I thought I was too good to wait tables. My mom had done it. My sister had done it. I'd known other people that had done it, but I just was too good, right? I didn't, re- I didn't think about it that way, but I was just like, I'm never going to wait tables. Right. The army taught me I'm not too good for anything. So when I came back and needed money, that made sense. I took a role away from waiting tables and it was doing these kind of fire alarm installations. And my friend, his dad owns an electrical company. And so I was just really tired of waiting tables. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I just want to work. Let me just work. I'm tired of dealing with people. Mm. And so... I went in, I worked half a day, Rich. I honestly worked half a day at wow. my best friend's dad's company because they walked me in and they said, okay, run the cable from this side to this side. And then just left me there. And I was <laughs> like, okay, well, man, like this isn't what I thought it was going to be. So I left at lunch. I had to call my friend and tell him that I was leaving and that I wasn't coming back. And thank you for the opportunity. And I had to call his dad and apologize to him and thank him for the opportunity. They were both frustrated with me, understandably. And I went back and I got another job winning tables. But I knew that that wasn't going to be the thing for me either because the lifestyle and the money being so fluctuating. So maybe sales is the next thing. There's something fascinating about the number of 
people you meet as a salesperson, right? Most people don't meet that many people after they complete like like high school or their highest level of education. They go to work. Lots of people work on the same job. They might make one or two changes over you know a twenty year period, and that's really about it. As a salesperson, like I meet more people in a month than most people are going to meet in like a two to three year period, which is kind of crazy to think about. So the ability to kind of know where you are, know the space that you take up in a conversation. Do people rapport with you easily? Are they, do they follow you down complex things or do, do they fidget, you know, and stuff like this, like really taking those reps, it becomes a little bit like, like comedy. Honestly, is how I think about it. Like comedians have to get up and bomb and bomb and bomb and bomb and bomb. And then finally they get a laugh. Oh, how do we improve that? Right. Sales is the same thing, but you have to be, you have to do it on your terms for your standards, because if you do it to their standards, that is just going to be endlessly disappointing. Well, you know, to, to that end, talking about, uh, you doing a a podcast, I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as a podcaster myself, uh, always, always want to know the process. So walk me through, uh, the podcast you're doing, uh, with, with your friend, what is it focused on? And, you know, what the core audience is. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, our podcast is called Sales Throwdown. And the the unique thing about our show, um, the personality assessment that I was talking about earlier that had such a huge impact on me is called DISC. It's very, it's very common. Uh, lots of people have heard about it. Lots of people use it in their hiring. Um, but this was the assessment that really started to allow me space to change. And the cool thing about our show, DISC breaks people up into four quadrants, right? There's the D component, which is direct or dominant. There's the I, which is influential. There's the S, which is steady. And there's C, which is conscientious. And these people, because they're in their, these four quadrants, are going to have traits, the way they talk about things, the way they talk about people, human goals, communication, things like this, that are indicative of who they are. So we have someone who's a high D and works in sales. We have someone who's a high I who's my old boss and he's in a different kind of sales. We have a high S who's in another kind of sales. And then I'm the C personality and I do my version of selling. So the goal of the show is to talk about just how wide sales can be as a role and that there's a sales type that can work well for just about anybody on the planet. You just have to find what that is in the right leadership and you can do it. So, that's 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 it. We have over 80 something episodes. We talk about everything from hiring to qualifying to saying no to really like deep diving into yourself so, so that way you can begin to learn who you are. Right. You can't shortcut this by just trying to figure out who the who the other person is, because. We still take up some space in that conversation, so we have to know that space that we take up, if that makes sense. So that's the name of the podcast we we do and we sell the assessments that we use on our on ourselves and so we sell those to sales teams and entrepreneurs who want to begin that path of awareness to really kind of know who they are and that's the main audience right are, are just sales people there's a there's a whole group of people who think of selling the same way that I do right it's a it's a it's a deep deep well you can endlessly improve and it's work worth doing it's just not everybody because there are a bunch of people who just assume that if you pitch well and pitch strong and if you if your hair is slicked back, if you're a smooth talker, the people will tell you yes. No, that's a that's a big misconception. If that if if that were always the case, every person that worked in a car dealership that looked exactly how you described would be closing more deals and the market wouldn't be where it is 
currently. So it's interesting that you say that. Now, obviously, we 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 talk about the guts of of that. How do you how do you build that podcast out? What's the process to getting an episode out to your to your audience? Good question. Um, so it started. We were we were actually at a sales conference, and Nanette, who's the S personality type. S personality types have a lot of empathy. They're very warm. They want everyone to get along. But too much of that in a sales role can sometimes get in your way, right? Too much empathy will drive you to cause gaps in the decision-making process. So you'll say things like, you know what? You should just go think about this a little bit. Because sometimes for those people, taking a no feels like conflict. So they will enable a think it over versus going for clarity because they're uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Yep. So... What she was struggling with a prospect and Clint and I were kind of hearing it out, kind of, okay, why, why asking her lots of questions. How do we get here? Who was the introduction from? What are, what are your goals for this opportunity and this relationship and things like that? And then she works with Al and it turns out Al was part of the problem, right? The I personality type. Right. And so we kind of just talked through that. And then is this a show? Yeah, I think this is a show. (laughs) <laughs> so we started before COVID and we got really lucky. We met a guy named Paul who has got production space and also really did a lot to kind of help us kind of get started. Uh, the very first, pro- probably half of the episodes are done in a studio and then COVID hit. We weren't going to the studio anymore. So then that's when we moved it to Zoom. Okay. Um, the podcast has been on, on hiatus for honestly, all of last year, because we've, we've all kind of hit in that space to where we've gotten some success, you know, built up from this thing. And now we're all just very, very busy. Right. So we're in the middle of kind of doing a reformat around turning it into three, three weeks of the month are me interviewing other salespeople to kind of show how deep the well can go. And then the goal is to meet once a month, maybe if, if we can do more than we can to kind of just get back together and just kind of share stories, right? So the format is going to change a little bit just because it was getting very difficult to schedule all four of us time to meet and do it at the level that we want. So I noticed you were also, um, you have a blog as well and a newsletter. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to, to talk about that because it's, it's, it's not often that sales, uh, people in the sales space rely more on the written word. It's usually video courses uh, you know, buy buy my ebook, etc. But you're still you're still putting your thoughts out there in a, in a more personal and intimate space with a blog. Um, was that something you consciously wanted to do, or did you feel that that was just a good way to, as you were saying before, just work through your process, putting it out there so that people can can have something tangible that they can look at and it can resonate with them a little bit more uh, intimately. Man, that's a great question. I I think that comes from finding Noah whenever I did, right? Um, I found Sumo. I found Noah because I was listening to Tim Ferriss, and I kind of liked how he was talking about it and started to follow him. And shout out to a guy named Doc, who I don't think is in the underdog community, but he's been at some of like Noah's events and everything. What he does is he gives people an assessment that shows them what kind of content they need to be doing because wow. it's the one that's going to be most approachable for them, which is, which means you're going to be the most consistent in that vein. And uh, we talked about this on a, on a bike ride that we were on down in down in Austin. I was blown away by this because I love assessments. I'll take any one I can get if I think it's going to give me one little inch of improvement, happy to take it. And so 
come to find out the way that I think about content is in the written word, which, which makes sense. I can write for long periods of time. Um, so when, when it came to starting the business, I didn't want to just be dependent on other people's platforms, right? Cause one of the biggest lessons I learned from Noah was that, you know, you need to own your stuff. You need to own your channels, right? So social media, things like this are great for putting the word out, but you want to drive them back to something you own completely. And that just really stuck with me. I'm a big fan of like control. So thinking about what, what we were going to put out there, how we were going to do it. Blogging was something that I, I love to read. I like to read a lot. I like really great blogs that are not just built for great SEO and to capture my, my information, right? Those are becoming harder to find. And right. so our goal was to really write about things that would have been helpful to me five to 10 years ago. And that started with one blog. Um, I have this kind of blog that's like my like entrepreneurial side and journey and stuff like this and all my kind of weird improvement things. And that's John Small Mountain, which is what I was starting whenever I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was running a website design agency with a business partner. And I wasn't sure that that was going to be the thing for me for, for forever. So let me start thinking about what's next. Let me start putting some content out there because I was just going to go be a sales manager or, or try to be a VP of selling. And then decided that that wasn't really going to be the thing for me. And by that point, we had been blogging for a while and really, really enjoyed it. And so we started to have to growth and we we posted a lot of blogs on both on both of those sites for a while. Content is just something that everybody has to be putting out because if you're not, excuse me, if you're not putting out content, you're just making it very hard to get meetings. Is how I think about it. True. I don't love all the all the effort that goes into marketing. If that makes sense, I would much rather just play with tech, right? Work with my clients and just kind of do my thing. But you have to, right? Doing everything that I do, the podcast and the book and putting myself out there and the content that we write and contributing value to others makes it very easy for me to get the amount of meetings I need to have the volume in my pipeline to know that I'm going to hit my goals. Right? So like to me, it's all just kind of one big, long activity. But man, it's a lot of work. It's, I mean, it's a lot of work. But the, the best thing that I learned from Doc in that, in that assessment was we all have a way of thinking about content. And if we can lean into that, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Everything starts out as like a written document for me. Working with uh, Dan from the MDoc community on video stuff, he thinks in video. Right. I do not. And sometimes that creates unique friction in our conversations about how we conceptualize things. It's very, very interesting. But you got to create, like, especially if you're independent, if you don't have a brand to lean on because you're building it as you're going, You've got to put a bunch, you have to overshare to kind of fill in the backdrop behind you because you don't have the brand presence to do that, right? Like if I work for Deloitte, I don't need to put out any content because I just work for Deloitte, right? Right. But since I don't work for Deloitte, I work for Adapted Growth, which is the thing that no one has ever heard before. Oh, you should go check a look at, you, you should go take a look at the podcast. You should go take a look at the blog. You should go take a look at all of these things. So I don't have to tell you that I'm an ethical salesperson who has a very high performance level. You can go listen to that and then we'll have a conversation. There you go. Um, last bit before we jump into what I like to call the hot seat. Um, tell me a little bit about, about the book, uh, your process for getting the book published, et cetera. How did you, you know, talk us through that? Because getting people think that, especially with the accessibility of being able to get a book done nowadays, that it's, it's, oh, I'm going to, 
uh, turn on word and write out this book. And there's a lot of, of heavy lifting that goes into it. So, uh, give us a, give us a snapshot of that. Man, I, <laughs> I'm in a very weird space around this because, because of how I think about work and how, and how I do work and how I approach it. I just did a little bit every day, right? Which, which seems absurd. Uh, and I'm trying to find a better way to talk about this because to me, it doesn't like as an entrepreneur, it's often very difficult to look at the things that you do and assess the value well, right? Because if you did it, how hard can it possibly be? Right. right. That, that's just, that's just how most people think. Right. I'm, I'm almost a Kung Fu master. I'm a Kung Fu instructor in an art called Wing Chun, which is 300 years old, trained lots of people on how to fight in it. But to me, it doesn't feel like that big of a deal until I touch hands with someone or we're sparring or something like this. And they're just overwhelmed with their ability of not being able to touch me. <laughs> it's, it's only in that moment that I can really appreciate the value of the work that I put into this art because I don't go around fighting people. Right. Right. So when, when the book happened, we were, I was in the middle of COVID. Honestly, we're in the middle of lockdown. And my friend of mine and I, we decided to do a daily show, right? So we went live every morning, live streamed 7.45 a.m. on Facebook and on YouTube. This show called Morning Bill. And it, I mean, it helped me a ton, honestly, because like COVID was pretty rough for most people, my, myself included. But having to get up every day, this is on the calendar. Here's what I'm working at. I'm also going to write two chapters, 1,500 words each, right? And it was really just focused on accountability and getting through. And uh, that's what did it. But, you know, I wrote 1,500 words a day as a minimum for wow. about 60 days. And then, thankfully, I live with an amazing editor, right? <laughs> She's my partner. We've been together for 18 years. She knows my stuff inside and out. So I was able to give her something that was 80% there. And she was able to go and put that polish on it because the first version of the book was very much that, Hey, I'm legit. You should hire me. And what right. she has done with it as far as like the editing process and drawing more stuff out of me and really kind of going back and filling in the gaps is what made it the thing that it is now that I'm so proud of because, you know, it's, it's a very weird thing to put yourself out there in like a blog and mm -hmm. a podcast, a book feels different. Right. So I was very concerned about it, and uh, the feedback we've gotten on it has been mind-blowingly awesome, honestly. Like, crazy, crazy, crazy feedback from people. We did the audio in-house, which was really, really fun. Um, kind of built a little home studio here. I read the whole book two to three times, right? Some some chapters I read seven times because I, I couldn't get the tonality that I wanted. Huh. And then um, my amazing partner, Melissa, went in there, edited it all together. She's been learning all of this stuff because she never really had to do it before. But the audiobook is out. If we got that out just before the end of the year last year, so that's an Audible exclusive, well worth the credit. And then Selling from Scratch is on Amazon. It's also on Barnes and Noble. You can get the PDF, you can get the Kindle, or you can get the, the paperback copy. But it's all about how to sell by leaning into the humanity of the situation and the conversation as opposed to trying to be slick or smooth or, you know what what we normally try to do it's it's interesting as you're uh, talking us through the process that your your partner um edited the book and you said and going back to what you just said that the initial drafts were you trying to sell yourself which is pretty funny and then your sure. partner came and added the human element because at the end of the day 
it's, you know, we're always going to be our own worst critic. And then you kind of want that bit of balance, that yin to that yang. So it's great that you have a partner that does that. I mean, for, for my website for years, my wife was my editor. <laughs> she would edit every post before yeah. it would go out. So, so I definitely feel um, a kinship there. That's very cool. And I like, once again, that awareness, if I had to edit myself, I wouldn't get most things written. Right. Because like I'm hypersensitive. I'm, I'm going to overpolish. Like there, there's this thing in like entrepreneurial circles around like the MVP, like just get it out as soon as you possibly can. Because if, if you're, if you're not concerned about it, you waited too long. It's kind of like, like this, this saying, right. And man, I, I can't function that way. Like I, I can't put out uh, a thing so bare bones like that. Right. So the the book is way better than I than I think that most people would expect because you know it's just me and my partner but we had an amazing book coach who I actually met through Dieter who's in the Unbound community shout out to Dieter because uh, I don't know that we would have gotten it done had he not been so willing to make the introduction to Sue who's my book coach um, she was really really awesome really helped us out a lot um, but yeah coaching. Coaching makes the difference, right? When you have a deadline and you and it has to be done. I tell everybody that you don't need a coach if you have forever to do it. But the minute there's a deadline, it becomes a goal and you probably need someone to kind of make sure you're doing the right stuff. So I practice what I preach. So we had a book coach and I had a Kung Fu coach. I've had poker coaches when I was playing poker full time. <laughs> um, I'm a big advocate in it because I just I don't have time to waste and I don't have I don't have I don't have enough patience to want to fail enough that I'm going to figure it out on my own. I always want to shortcut the process. As a, as, as a martial artist growing up and as a fan of uh, the genre, when it comes to film, uh, mm-hmm. I, I got to ask for my own personal, um, what got you, what got you into, into Wing Chun? So honestly, I came home from the army and in the army, you learn a little bit of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, like um, in basic training, you get like a half day instruction. So you don't really learn a lot, but you're, you're drinking all that mindset juice of the army of, you know, you're a train killer. And then there's all this stuff about how the army's better than the Navy and all this weird kind of tribalistic <laughs> stuff, you know? Yep. So I came home from the army. I, I'd always wanted to do karate, taekwondo. I, like I was a kid. I wanted to be a ninja. I told people that like I was taking ninja training at an old school because I was trying to be cool and fit in. Like that's how long I've like wanted to do this. And so 2003, um, I'm just trying to find the thing that's going to be it for me. And I'm going around to all these different schools and I go to Travis Luter's jujitsu school. Who's, who's here in the town that I'm in. And I'm a very tall guy. I'm six foot four. And I'm like, you know, I don't really want to be on the ground if I don't have to be, this isn't it for me. And so right. went to a bunch of Aikido and Taekwondo and karate and Eskrima. And I, I went to a JKD school for Jeet Kune Do, which is Bruce Lee's art. Yep. And uh, none of it spoke to me. And then someone, a skater friend of mine, he, he goes, hey, there's a guy who, t- who teaches Kung Fu. And I was like, what is this Kung Fu? You know, and uh, he goes, he goes, yeah, he teaches people how to fight with like umbrellas and stuff. And I was like, that's pretty rad. I want that. I called the wrong school. So like I ended up going to a different Kung Fu school because I went and did some Googling and Kung Fu was just like not even on the radar. Right. So I find this school. It's here in my local town. And the guy teaches multiple kinds of Kung Fu and he makes everyone go in and watch at least two. So I go in and I watched Wing Chun first and it just spoke to me, man. Like I, I very rarely have I felt these 
this is it for me. This is something I can pour myself into. Right. But he makes you watch multiple arts because they are so fundamentally different that the one that you're drawn to is the one you should do is how he thinks about it. So come back the next night and I bring my friend and we're checking out praying mantis, seven star praying mantis. And my friend, this happens all the time. I didn't know this then because I had not been through it. He goes, man, if you want to do this, I'm going to do it with you, but I want to do this art. Oh, okay. Boy. Yeah. You already know what's happening. Yep. So I say, okay, cool. I sign up that night. He never signs up. Right. And I do praying mantis for about the next year. And it just wasn't my art. It was too big. It didn't make sense. It wasn't something I could hold conceptually. So I took a break to those waiting tables. And I came back to the school and I come into my teacher and I hadn't been there in probably six or seven months. He didn't know who I was. Like he just had a vague recollection of me because people drop out all the time. I say, hey, sir, I'm back, but I want to do Wing Chun. And he goes, okay, show up tomorrow. So I come back tomorrow. And it's so funny. I remember this clear as day. He goes, John did some praying mantis with us. He's now going to do some Wing Chun. And the veterans of the Wing Chun side um, are all these like salty people, right? Because, you know, if you train martial arts, you know what it's like to right. cross that threshold of I've been here for a while and you're brand new and you're probably not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And so this one guy who's one of my very closest friends, he goes, dun, 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 dun. You know, just kind of giving me shit. And I was so mad. I was like, man, screw this guy. But Wing Chun was it, man. Like the first day of learning the math and the reason why behind these techniques have got to be inched in. Like Tong Sao is 135 degree angle of the body because that body, because your body loves that angle. You'll be stronger in that angle. And if we look back at like bare knuckle boxing, they kind of have this kind of very forward hand. Yep. Right. That's at that kind of 135 degree angle. And the right. reason why it's so far out there is because they learned it's not going to come crashing into their face if it gets hit. That's right. So there is something to this. You know, Wing Chun is a, is a, is a, is a ladder. It's, it's a very unique art in how it's taught if you want to do it well, because there's not a whole lot of appreciation for individual expression until you're at the very, very, very last levels. Right. So it's kind of like a blueprint that you have to put your time into really learn those rules so that way you can then break them as you need to at the higher levels. And I just, I just love that. Right. To me, that's, that's sales. That's poker. That's all these other, Mm -hmm. the overlap is so significant to me. Uh, It was just easy to pick up. Yep. Build the the foundation and then break the rules as you go. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the way that he talked about it, once again, knowing how you learn, I got to have the depth. I have to like, I can't do the, just do it because I said so that just shuts me down kind of thing. My teacher is a, is a scholar around the, around Kung Fu and the history of it and stuff. And so why do we do it that way? Well, let me tell you. Right. Really, really, really strong stuff. Well, it it's checked actually, off the boxes for you too, because you're always, you were very inquisitive. You had a lot of questions. So now exactly. to your point, uh, catering to your learning strengths. Now you had a person who not only was a fountain of knowledge, was a fountain of knowledge in something that you had already immersed yourself in. So it was like a no-brainer to just keep consuming that information for you. Yeah. And I, it was it was my passion. It was there were roles that I turned down that maybe I shouldn't have during during my like focused like study of, of kung fu that would have paid me a lot more, but it would require travel, it would require me to work nights, it would require me to work weekends, and it was Man, it was non-negotiable. Mondays, Wednesdays, 
from from 6.30 until 11. You do not call me. Friday wow. nights from 7.30 until 10. You do not call me. Saturday mornings from, you know, uh, 12.30 until about 3. You do not call me. Like, my family knew it. My friends knew it. My friends were at the school training with me. So who was going to call me? Like, <laughs> that's that's how hardcore it was, you know. And it's it's weird because, like, as a martial artist, like, you're training to be instinctual. Right. But when you get to that level, you become the you become the caricature of the martial artist. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't turn this off, and it's like that's not what you're going for, right? Right? Like someone if someone grabs my shoulder, I want to answer appropriately, right? So the way that you train is the way that you're going to respond, right? Which is another core thing that we talk about in our coaching and training of people is that people think they're going to rise to the occasion in that in that emotional moment. If you get mad enough, you're going to be able to beat the Hulk in a wrestling match. That's absurd. Nope. Just not going to happen. So when we think about sales as the same way, you're going to be in an emotional situation. Sheer will is not going to get you to the finish line. Strategy, thought, technique is going to get you to the finish line well. Nice. Right? Saving time, using your time wisely so that way you can move on as opposed to just taking up space because someone is willing to allow you to do so. That's a, that's a hell of a way to, to close things out. Um, man, uh, I want to, I want to switch gears and jump into what I like to call the hot seats, just a series of rapid fire questions. And, um, what are three mobile apps you can't live without three mobile apps? I cannot live without, um, discord. I love discord. I, and I love, the experience of looking at Discord versus Slack because they're the same exact tool marketed to two very different groups mm-hmm. of people. I love that because how easy would it have been for Discord to be like, you know what? There's already a chat app. We don't even need to get involved. Yep. I just started getting more into Discord now for, for Rageworks and I definitely like it more mm-hmm. only because uh, to, to your point, we, you know, we have the, 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 the atypical Facebook fan page, Facebook group, and yep. the engagement in the group is just dwindling because people just they're not really on Facebook like that or they just don't want to interact with that platform. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to move more towards Discord. And I definitely see a lot of the benefits, like you're saying. Yeah, the right now, Facebook groups are incredibly hot, right? They're they're juicing them. Their, their algorithm loves them because you're seeing commercials about them right all right. over all over everything. So right now, there's a huge push for groups. However, and this goes back to the Nova thing that we were talking about earlier. If they change and they're no longer juicing groups, if they're no longer seeing this as a vital part of their growth, mm-hmm. don't be don't be in that boat. Yep. Right. Our community is actually built on Slack because I own it. Right. right. I own it. It's never going to shift. I can go, I can invite people manually, which is what I do. Bring people in. Hey, share with the community what you're working on. Where are you stuck? How can we help? Stuff like that. Because I want to I want to own that end result, right? I I own my website, I own my email list, I own my podcast, I own my community, and where and where we're building it. Um, and I think that's important because, thankfully, I was doing websites in like 2014, whenever um, Google changed their algorithm and it moved from just the sheer number of links to link quality. Right. And overnight, thousands of SEO companies were just out of business. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. That was when I was listening to Noah and stuff like this and like really trying to like figure some stuff out. And, and just the lining up of those two events, I need to own my stuff. It's got to be it's got to be mine. So we have a Facebook group. I need to be better about putting content in there because I think of that Facebook group as like a stepping stone 
to the end place, which is the Slack community. Right. So Slack and Discord, I think of those two things kind of being the same. Mobile apps. Hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna like actually look at my phone because I want to make sure the okay, one thing that I have found rather recently, I've been a big Headspace fan for a very long time. Meditation has had some pretty huge impacts on me. I talk about it on my blog, but it was also just kind of it just felt expensive. And while I love software, I always know there's the expensive version, and then there's someone building the <laughs> non-expensive version of the exact same thing. Yep. So I got this new app. It's called Insight Timer, and it's a meditation app. Really, really, really digging that. Um, and then the other one that I like a lot, honestly, is this thing. It's called Focus at Will. And what mm. they do is they re-engineer music. The original use case of this app was for trying to provide extra focus to people who have ADHD but work in roles that require focus. Right. So they, they mix and remaster the music very specifically to not to be there, to be present, to kind of put you into a flow state, but not so much so that it makes it hard to focus. Very, interesting. very interesting. Yeah, I love it. There's a timer on it. So like I use it in my journaling every morning, right? So like I'll set, I'll, I'll set a 15-minute timer, right? So nice, contained, right? You can get really, really deep in there and play with some stuff. Really, really like that app. And it's pretty affordable. I think it's like $35 a year. Not bad at all. Um, bad. What's your favorite piece of tech besides your phone or your computer? Ooh. Ooh. Man. Um, not phone, not computer, favorite piece of tech. Man, I love headphones. Like, <laughs> I, like uh, I... I, I think they're I think they're so cool and and I'm known for being like a headphone nerd. Um, I have Sony's on my on my ears right now. I work in them pretty much all day every day, right? Because I do a lot of calls. My partner will sometimes work in the room with me, and she doesn't always want to hear both sides of the conversation because sometimes she doesn't even want to hear my side of the conversation, which is fair. Right. So I'm always on headphones. I like a great headphone experience. It's I don't know why it's so important to me, but it just kind of always has been. So I have a pair of Sony's that I wear at the desk. I have a pair of Skull Candies that I'm testing because my job has kind of failed and died. But headphones, man, I love them. They're my they're my favorite things to explore. And if I'm not buying some, I'm still researching them to figure out what I'm going to buy next time. Nice. Um, what's Fair the last book about? you read? Ooh, last book I read. Uh last book I finished was um, an audible book. I finished this actually earlier this week. It is called, let me get the name right. I'm so sorry. I just had it. I'm so sorry, Rich. How to think like, how to think like David Bowie. Um, My partner and I are both huge David Bowie fans. She introduced him to me. And when you dive into his history, I just like how many times he was able to recreate himself as like different kinds of personalities who would be on the stage it's kind of a masterclass in like branding yourself, like very, very, very cool. And he, and he worked, he worked as hard as any entrepreneur I know on building environments that are going to allow allow them to work well. So very, very interesting book, really great on audible, very, very quick read. I moved from that into the polar opposite of it. I'm currently listening to psycho psycho cybernetics, which is being pretty mind blowing came pretty highly recommended. Huh? And, and what is, what does that cover? Psycho-Cybernetics is fundamentally a self-help book, right? It's about the ideas of vision, 
right? Dreamscaping, right? Really kind of separating yourself from your failures. So that way you don't unintentionally sabotage yourself in the future. Huh? That's a, that's a, that's pretty deep. <laughs> pretty deep. Yeah. Like, um, for a long time, man, I didn't like these books, honestly. Um, didn't see any value, excuse me, didn't see any value in them at all. And then my business partner was like, Hey, you should read this book. And it was a book about flow and broke my head, man, because like inside of Kung Fu, I get flow at right. the poker table. I get flow, right? I like, like time dilates. I can do it for forever. It's like a very weird thing. And so I'm reading this book and I'm like, Oh my God, this is a thing other people can do because like I was always in trouble, <laughs> especially after we had our daughter because, and I can do Kung Fu for hours. Right. Like, man, I'll just get lost. Right. And then come to find out that this is a thing that you can build. Oh my God. You know, like totally like flipped my world on its head with that very first development book. And then, okay, what else can I learn? So, um, psycho cybernetics is very much on the, on the more crunchy end of the development stuff, right. Actualization and like looking at yourself the right way and stuff. But, uh, the really great book that got me to hear was a book called breaking the habit of being yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Great book, man. Huge, huge, huge book. He talks about how to meditate and how to do some of the stuff. If I've not read that, I wouldn't be reading this. And I would probably recommend people start with the Dispenza book first. Man, that's a, uh, now I'm going to have to take a look at that. Um, What's your media diet like? How do you limit and control your media consumption? Man, um, this is my favorite topic. Um, I don't watch the news at all, record cutters. So I don't watch it either, so don't feel bad. <laughs> okay. Um, it took me a while to get there, right? In the middle of COVID, I was way too focused on the media because I, I think most people were. And at the same time, I'm reading Ryan Holiday's book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, about mm-hmm. media manipulation. Great book. Great Ryan book. Holiday is awesome. Yeah, really. That's that, That's the next person on my bucket list that I would like to try to meet his stoicism stuff is insane yeah i found stoicism in the middle of covid and fell fell in love right talk about deep wells right i like part of my journaling every day is going through the daily stoic right of you know a little bit of daily devotion and looking at my perceptions and how i get in my own way and where am i letting my emotions take control it's a really great uh metaphor for kung fu right and kung fu the, there's a saying: the master is not mad at the at the at the people that he beats. Right. Stoicism: don't let your anger take control of the situation and cause you to do things you shouldn't be doing. I think I think that messaging uh, before we move on to the next question is something mm-hmm. that is so is so impactful, and I want people that are listening to this conversation to focus on that because I think that that was a big part of what hurt the last two years, meaning yeah. that. People's media consumption was what I like to call weapons of mass distraction. You'd watch it, you'd get angry about it, and then you'd lose sight of everything else going on around you. It's like, I'm mad that the supermarket shelves are empty. Okay, but are you mad that you don't have food? Because if you have food, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, it sucks that the supermarket shelves are empty. But is your cupboard and your fridge full? You know, does your kid have formula? Does your kid have diapers? Because if you can't find those basics, then yeah, that that you can be mad about. But because you can't find some Rocky Road ice cream for three weeks, your world is not going to end. 
mean, I so I was already delivering via Zoom for the most part before COVID hit. And like I was kind of an unintentional idiot because since I get to work from home and I work over Zoom and I work for myself, I wasn't having to deal with a lot of the frustrations that a lot of other people do. Right. right. And like like talking about like waiting tables, you know, one night I live in Texas, which is very conservative and not the most uh uh what's the word I'm looking for? Concerned about uh safety. Right. Sense. So months before other places were open, I would I'd be driving to the grocery store in the evening because I think they're gonna be less busy <laughs> and restaurants are just packed the mm-hmm. on on patios, right? Yep. And you know, trying to be empathetic around people need an outlet, right? Uh, there was a study a long time ago. I, re- I read this somewhere. Uh, the the amounts of domestic abuse they go up after the Dallas Cowboys lose. Isn't that crazy? You know, the thing about it is when you look at things like that, people people are very reactionary. And to your point about outlets. We, you know, in New York, New York shut down and like everything came to a screeching halt. And then as things opened up, people were like, they'd act like they'd never been to the bar before. (laughs) Like, I remember, you know, I go to a, we have a UFC gym over here. It's open 24 hours, but it's no longer 24 seven, which is a frustration for me. But, um, it's, uh, the funny thing is it's 24 seven, like Monday through Thursday, Friday, they close at 11 for whatever reason. But I'm leaving the gym at like 2 a.m. driving home. And, you know, there's some bars on the way down and you just see people outside. And I'm just like, I'm like, wow, was was your life was your life so lacking of joy that this is what you needed to feel alive? And it's interesting because on one point, it's it's very reflection. Uh, You know, I, I use it as a point of reflection because like I don't drink. I don't do any of that stuff. So I look at it like man, this is what they need to feel joy. And then I'm like, but damn, I needed to go to the gym to feel joy. So I'm like, I can't even be mad at them. But the thing that tripped me out was the fact that people just walked around like none of this stuff was still happening. Like I'm all about not letting the fear control you aspect. I'm all for that. But I'm also cognizant, like, listen, you know, play stupid games, get stupid prizes too, you know? (laughs) Um, and so I was a professional poker player back in 2006, right? And poker's po- poker's a game of risk and awareness is really what it comes down to. Um, and I had coaches at, at the time. And one of the things was one of the things my coaches told me was that the style that I was playing of poker was just going to lead to bigger swings. I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And they said, "Well, you're playing hands that are going to put you in decisions that are going to be difficult. And the more time you spend in difficult decisions, the less time you'll spend in easy decisions. But that starts with the hands you decide to engage with. And this man, Rich, my head exploded, <laughs> right? Because I'm there trying to fix the wrong part of the problem. How do I make sure I win every hand? Well, John, poker players are not concerned with trying to win every hand. They're trying to make sure that the hands that they play, they win big." Oh, I've been doing this all wrong the whole time. So, you know, thankfully, stoicism, the journaling, I found all that in the beginning of COVID and it provided some space of, you know, it was, it was super easy to be frustrated at those moments because my friend, is an, he is still a professional poker player. He's got his World Series of Poker bracelet. And this, this past summer, very, very accomplished poker player. He's living in Chicago. His 
wife is an ICU doctor and I'm hearing from them what's happening there. Right. Right. So stoicism and journaling and like the self-care stuff provided me space to be like, you probably need that. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm an introvert and I can work this stuff. Like, like us being on this call, all the calls that I do, that is adjusted behavior that I need to do to get my job done. Right. That's my Kung Fu. That's my, that's my thing that I just do now. Yep. But it's not my natural pace. Right. I, I, I'd much rather just be here playing with tech or working one-to-one with a client or working with my team on something. Sales and marketing are things that I can just do now, but they don't charge my battery. Right. So since I don't get charged from it, I know lots of people, they will jump into any meeting they can possibly get because they get fuel from it. And that's its own problem in selling, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're just taking meetings with anybody because you're enough, you're going to talk yourself into these weird ego spots that are going to be very hard to get out of. So yep. if I get energy from being alone, I have to be okay with the fact that some people need to be around others. Mm-hmm. Like you just have to. And, you know, starting, starting from there, I was able to kind of create some space to kind of be a little less rigid in my thinking. I, I tend to be a very black and white person in how I approach most things. It makes me good at the things that I do, but it also right. makes me, terribly obtuse at times. Right. You feel inflexible because at the end of the day, it's your value system. I think, I think um, Mm -hmm. I can, I can understand that quite a bit, but I also feel that that value system, as long as the foundation, going back to what we were saying, the foundation is in place, you can break the rules. Like I, I tell people all the time, like, especially during last year's whole political landscape, people were so divided. And I said, listen, Instead of labeling that you're one side or the other side, there's some ideas on one side that are good, and there's some ideas on the other side that are good. Take from each, you know, uh, take from each, cast away what you find is useless. I mean, Bruce Lee talked about that all the time. So it's, it's the same process. And I think that people were just so confounded by that because they wanted to be defined by these labels that it just, it just, like I said, threw everything into just utter, utter chaos, you know? Yeah. The, the really hard part is we lose sight of the human mm-hmm. on, the, on the other end of the phone, and it's even more so over the internet, right? So no one gets the benefit of the doubt yep. right, at, at all. So, <clears throat> so you would want to be heard out. I would want to be heard out. Of course. Right? And not done in the way that it feels like a trap. Right. Because like there are those people on both who will well tell me why you feel the way that you feel about it. Well, that's not really collaborative. No. Nope. Right. It, it feels a bit like a trap and it just makes me not want to engage with you mm-hmm. because you're telling me without telling me that you're not going to give me the space. Yep. It's an inquisition and exactly. not and not a dialogue. Exactly. And so thinking about that and made me way better at what I do as a salesperson because it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing, right? If I, if, if you're going to show up and you, and you're going to do something different for them, you have to be able to show them why it's going to be different, how it's going to be different and what that difference means to them. And if they do not trust you from the jump, you're not, you, you're not going to be able to talk to them to, to that place, right? Like Noah talks about your engaged list versus your total list size, right? And how total list size is a, is a vanity metric. Mm-hmm. Your engaged list is the real metric. Well, here's the thing. If you're a marketer and you're going to go sell yourself and you're going around, you're talking to people like, oh, it doesn't matter how big your list is. It's true. 
it, it is true, but it's only true if you know that the engaged list is the important factor. Uh-huh. But if you're just walking around being like, don't worry about your list size, don't worry about your list size, you're going to sound like, a, like an idiot. <laughs> you got you to gotta provide the context. You yep. Know? So, but if people are not willing to follow you, right? Because I'm sure there's someone who watches Noah's stuff, they listen to Noah and everything, and they have a list of 100,000 people, but they have a list of 10,000 who are actually open. And that's just too much to look at. That's just yep. too much to like really kind of like own up to and acknowledge. So, you know, they're they're claiming vanity metrics as opposed to the metrics that matter. And that as as the consultant, you gotta go in there and you gotta show them the gaps in their knowledge that only works if they trust you. Yep. I mean I do that with podcasting. I tell people all the time, it's like, listen, you have to make sure that somebody will say to me, Hey man, I only got twenty five downloads for this episode and I said how many times do you talk to 25 people that are hanging on your every word? Yeah. You had to do like no real effort yep. other than one. Like That's it. It's man, crazy. I, <laughs> there, there is something interesting around the idea of like a podcast, a book, you know, these things that we do to build authority, to grow a brand, to grow awareness and to do the things that we do. Once you get it, once you see how, it, how it's, it's a, it's a lever. Realize what I'm, because like that guy could go get 25 individual conversations, but yep. there's probably going to have to be three sets of, mm. of 25 conversations because you got to prove it. Yep. Then you got to qualify and then you can close. If you, if, if you walk in the door because you were on a podcast, Hey Rich, thanks for having me on. <laughs> then, and then someone reaches out, Hey, I heard you on Rich's podcast. We already started that place of trust. Yep. So my, my life is so much easier because it's like, okay, cool. What do you really think you need? It's true. And no one is honest with the salesperson when they're thinking of you as a salesperson first. Yep. They got to think of you as achievement first. I agree. What's the last item you purchased that was less than a hundred dollars that made your life easier or just more enjoyable? Ooh, I got it right here. Um, shout out to Dan Bennett. This is a Joby kind of gorilla uh, pod. Yeah. Yeah. Gorilla pod. Um, I'm trying to train myself to think in terms of video because I really do you think that the way that I communicate, the way that I talk about it could be done on like a YouTube format. I just have to do some, some sitting and kind of do some mindset shift into it. So I got this thing. Dan said to just do some reps, which makes sense. So I bought this thing and I've been trying to force myself to record just like a little bit here and there. It's like mm-hmm. $45, but it's really nice. I've got a lot of control over the angle and the distancing and things like that. And it is helping. Um, that's probably it's probably the coolest thing I've gotten or that I purchased recently uh, right. for myself under a hundred dollars. Nice. We, you know, we've covered a lot of technical stuff, you know, obviously the toys is in the title. Um, yeah. What was a toy or a collectible that you had growing up? Oh man. Um, so <laughs> this is, this is, this is interesting. I don't ever get to talk about this. Um, as, I was an eighties kid as well. I'm 41 years old. And as a kid, Jordan was it. Yep. Right? I mean, and I love basketball as a tall kid. Re- always wanted Jordan. And my parents always said no because they, they were expensive and I was a growing kid, which made sense. Um, so I collect Jordans. I have probably four or five pairs of Jordans. Um, I also collect books because um, I'm, a, I'm a big reader. And then, I mean, the other thing, <laughs> I get a lot of, I get a lot of paraphernalia and little bitty things from the realms that I'm really into that I really, really enjoy. Like, gotcha. Because, because of stoicism, 
um, I got a gift from my partner, and it's uh, this character from a show called The Good Place, which is a great show. It talks a lot about philosophy and, and things like this. It's also hilarious. One of the characters on the show is this guy named Chidi. He's a moral philosopher, and uh, I have his pop like back here <laughs> on my on my shelf here behind me. Right. Just as like a thing of he makes this line. He 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 says two lines that I think about all the time. One is philosophy is the study of the things that we take for granted, which like yep. the first time I heard that I had to jump up and go journal about it because I was just, I was just mind blown by that whole thing. And then the second one is that no one likes moral philosophy professors. Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so as a guy who wants to endlessly philosophize and look for the depth and everything, I have to remind myself that not everybody has the time or the penchant to want to go to the depth that I do to really, really analyze like, why did you ask that question that way? Are you aware that some of your personality is showing up and how you built that question in your head? And let's look at that. Not everybody wants to do that, which is okay. As a, as a fellow uh, Jordan enthusiast, um, what's your favorite pair of J's? Oh, man. I have so my, so my very first ones. I went to New York a couple of years ago for the very first time to go see the David Bowie is exhibit. It was, it was at the Brooklyn Museum. And so I got to go to Stadium Goods for the very first time. Oh, was, man. Dude. That's a crack house for us. Oh man, my so we go walking in. This is so funny. I'm with my I'm with my partner Melissa and our and my daughter Alice, and so we're in the we're in the store, and she goes, Are "You gonna buy something?" And I was like, "If they have something, <laughs> and she goes, she goes, "What's your budget?" I don't even want to know. Right? Oh, like, like instantly, and I was like, I was like, "Look, I'm not gonna spend more than five hundred dollars." And she was just like, five hundred dollars," because mm-hmm. you know money's different to different people. Yep. And they didn't have anything there, but. I come back home two weeks later, I'm just in the mall and I see the fives, the mm. fives and they're the grade. They're all gray. They got that gray camo around the heel cap. Yep. They got the red liner. Um, and I'd seen them at stadium goods and this was like a retro reissue, but it was, it was it. I was like, I gotta have these. And that was the first pair I bought since then. I have, I have uh son of Mars, I have I have a I have some chlorophylls. I have these all gray ones that launched. Um, so, but those first ones, like putting them on, and realizing like it's weird, man. Like like I just wanted them for so long and yep. wasn't ever like able to have them. And what's crazy is now that COVID and everything, I don't leave the house just like a time. So <laughs> like, it's just, just shoes and boxes that you can't enjoy. You know. It, I, I I feel that pain so much. I went through a a, a period um, where I was getting uh, ultra boosts because they were super okay. comfortable, mm-hmm. and just getting every color, all these patterns, all oh, these yeah. things. Then my buddy he put me onto like Asics Gel Light threes, and you start getting those colors. And being home, it's like I wear North Face uh, slippers, <laughs> North Face uh, fuzzy house slippers, or Champs uh, house slippers that look like a sweatshirt. Um, oh. You know, yeah. you know, I'll have a, a sweatshirt that has like holes in it from Old Navy. That's like a hockey sweatshirt that I wear. My wife is like, I'm going to burn that thing. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere. Like, right. You know, I go to pick up my daughter from school at two o'clock and that's the only time I'll throw on like 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 some Yeezys or a pair of J's to go pick her up. And, you know, it's funny because the teachers, they they see her sneakers and they go, you have to be into sneakers just because your daughter has these Jordans on. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, 
so I like Jordans a lot. I want to have lots of them. Um, I actually have a couple of pairs of Jordans hidden behind revenue targets, right? So nice. <laughs> to, because I, I, I'll just go buy whatever I want to buy, right? It's, it's kind of always been a problem. It's very um, freeing. Yeah, right? And then, <laughs> There's a well-known thing about like how salespeople and entrepreneurs use things like retail therapy to kind of balance uh-huh. themselves out. So um, I'm going to get the Gatorades, right? Those, nice. those those green watercolor, water cooler ones, right? The, the reissues from a couple of years ago. Yep. I am in love with these shoes so much. And I'm like, okay, when I have a $30,000 month, is when I will allow myself to go buy those shoes. But not go. until I do all 30K in that one month period. So that way I feel like I've actually earned it. And uh, this weirds people out. They're like, well, this go buy. Like, how much are these shoes, John? Are they thousands of dollars? And I'm like, and I'm like, no, you can probably get a pair for like 300 bucks. And they're like, well, just go buy it. And I'm like, no, no can't do it. I also like vans, right? So I have a couple um, collaborations of vans with you being a New York guy. Um, I have all the tribe and bands collabs tribe is huge for me. Like, like my favorite hip hop group ever. Wow. So five passed away, um, went to Queens whenever I was in New York to go look at the murals and stuff like that. And then they launched their collaboration with Vans. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had, I, I called in sick and went straight there. I got all of, them, you know, that I could possibly get. And, uh, then, then the bands Bowie collab came out a couple of years after that. I have all those as well. So it's a it's a very weird, interesting mix of shoes. But it's mostly Jordans. I have one pair of LeBrons that are the most uncomfortable things I've ever had on my feet. I only wear and, the LeBron 8s because they are super uncomfortable. I only have the 8s and that's it. Those, it like The way that it pinches in around the tongue. Yes. Like, how does he play? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I bought a pair of uh, Bruce Lee, Kobe Bryant's, you mm. know, and they're low. And I'd never had a low basketball shoe ever. And I'm like, how did he play in these? Like they're like they were like they're great. Like people always are like, wow, those are really cool looking because it has like the scratches like Enter the Dragon. And um I was like, I don't know how he played in these, but they look cool. <laughs> and that, that like I have the ones that have got uh like that marbling on the back through that cool texture of like how they kind of knit them up and everything. Right. They launched these shoes. I was blown away by like just the work of art that they are. Mm-hmm. Right? And then I was like, there's no way they're going to look that great in person. They did order them. They showed up, tried to wear them. Man, what is going on here? Like, like maybe I just don't have them laced or tied the right way and stuff like this, but man, there's no way to wear those shoes without it being. Oh, brutal. Like, oh. like, like I'm kind of mad at myself for buying them, <laughs> like, like still having them because like, I'm not going to wear them. I'm not going to buy more of them. Do I really need to keep them? It's a very weird spot to be in. You could, always, uh, you could always, you could always resell them on Goat. I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know what? I don't need access to like <laughs> access to the secondary market filled with shoes that I want to buy. Like I know, I know. I, sometimes, sometimes I, I do that. I mean, I, I they did a pair of Jordan ones based on Spider Man into the Spider Verse, yeah. and I missed them. And then I saw them on Goat, and the guy wanted like. $700 and I said to myself, well if I do them through a firm or afterpay, I could I could just I could just pay them little by little and it won't hurt as bad. And I said to myself, they are $700. You are out of your mind. That's yeah. more than a PlayStation. At least a PlayStation you can resell it. The sneakers you're going to wear them once they get beat up, maybe you'll make like half that money back. Yep. 
That's that's for sure. It, it's such like a weird thing because I would I would wear like my my low end theory vans, right? Like probably my favorite pair of shoes. It looks like the cover art of low end theory. They're all black with those kind of red and green stripes. Yep. Very, very tribe. Very. Oh, I love them. Right. But uh, I'd wear them to work. Right. I'd be on networking, selling, do, doing my thing. Right. And then I would have to go pick up my daughter from school and there'd be this mud pit. Or like a dirt pit. And so like every day I just had an extra pair of shoes in my vehicle because I know that I'm going to have to go stand in the dirt. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to go do this. And then um, we went to a Foo Fighters concert, me and my family. And there was a person and it was raining. It was crappy. It was cold. It was an outdoor amphitheater. This is a couple of years ago. And like I'm wearing beater shoes, right? Because like I just know what I'm in for. And, and a person five feet away is wearing the same pair of vans, right? The low end theories and everything. And I'm just looking at this person like, are you an idiot? Why, why would you wear those shoes here? Like, do you not know that you're never going to be able to buy those again? Like, yep. I, I was uh, <laughs> just a self. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. I was like, I might have a problem here. <laughs> Man, we're, we're going down the, the shoe rabbit hole. Um, yeah. Just a course correct. If, uh, if I call you a year from now and I go, John, how's business? What do you hope to answer with? Oh, dude, that's a great question. Um, I'm very big on goals. I don't do resolutions. I do goals. Uh, I think that resolutions are a recipe to give up. So uh, we we build goals and I try to space them out. I try to build them into like the smallest segment of activities that I possibly can. Um, so this year, I can tell you exactly what our goals are. I have three and a half X my sales goal because I'm not writing another book this year. So that, that'll give me a lot more time to sell and network. We're going to be launching a wholesale division of my sales training course called Sherpa, which are the, which is the conversational stuff that we teach people to sell better. So we're going to do wholesale approach to that. I want to build an NFT for people who want to build teams. So they'll be able to buy the, the NFT or the coin and have free access to, for me to coach their people. And in exchange, we're going to build very customized coaching for those people who are coin holders. And I'm going to be launching a new podcast. So those are the goals for this year. So when you when you call me in a year, those things will be done. Nice. All right. Um, last thing, uh, we mm-hmm. always like to give a little bit more value on on the sure. tail end when we wrap things up. We call it reach one, teach one. Um, if you had one piece of advice for somebody, well, let me rephrase that because I always rephrase it for different people. You're talking to a senior class of high school students and they're being tasked with obviously uh, choices to go into the military or going into uh, the just the field of work and sales is part of that, of course. What's a piece of actionable of actionable advice you'd give them before they embark on that journey? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think at that age, I think I think if I was talking to someone, my advice to them would be to just pause, right? Pause, slow down for a second. Um, there's a there's a whole wide world between those two goalposts of college and like military, right? And a lot of people, they just see those as like they have to go one or the other, right? There's a whole world of opportunity out there. I didn't finish college. Um, I, I came back home from the army. I was always just doing well enough that never really felt the need to go back. What's fascinating is last week they asked me to come talk about networking, which is hugely validating, you know, but the thing that I'm going to talk about when, when I go in there to go talk is like, 
go connect with like a lot of people and learn what they're doing and learn why they want to do it. Cause like that's where the sauce is. Like people will do amazingly difficult things when it's aligned with their purpose. And when you can spend time with people who do very hard things because they know that it's work worth doing, your mindset changes. So go hang out with like passion, passionate high performers. You will be a different person. Nice. All right. Uh, John, thank you for taking the time to chop it up with us and share the toys and tech of your trade. Thank you, man. This was awesome. I appreciate it so much. Where can people visit you, connect with you, and keep up with you? Oh, thank you so much. Um, Adaptogrowth.com is the website. Um, Selling from Scratch is the book, and that is on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. We also have the the audio version, if that's your preference, on Audible. So please take a look at the book. Uh, it's a great place to start. We wrote it in a format that is meant to be a very easy read. It's not as dense as uh, as I sometimes make it out to be in my conversations. So there you go. And we'll make sure to include links to everything John and I discussed in the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much, man. Thank you so much, Rich. I appreciate it. What a great conversation with John Hill. Looking forward to sharing more amazing underdog entrepreneurs and creators with you in the coming weeks and months. I mean, if this is the kind of stuff we, you know, I'm going to get when I sit down with one of my fellow underdogs, you guys are in for a treat. Again, massive thanks to John for sitting down with us and sharing his story and big, big props to Noah for creating this awesome community that legit is just trying to help one another it's really an iron sharpen iron uh excuse me it's an iron sharpens iron uh click or group and i'm really glad to be a part of it so many great thinkers so many great creators so many awesome entrepreneurs again really looking forward to sharing their stories with you in the coming months and definitely check out noah kagan's podcast if you haven't it like i've said uh earlier in this podcast um so much great stuff in there, man. So many great stories, so much actionable advice. It's a, you're doing yourself a huge disservice if you don't give a listen to at least one episode. As always, links to everything John and I discussed will be in the show notes for this episode. As always, full disclosure, some of those things may contain affiliate links, which if you click, uh, we will receive a small commission. It will not change the price of whatever it is you're buying, but we do get a small commission, which allows us to, of course, make this podcast better and make everything that RageWorks does better, better equipment, uh, more help, lots of other stuff. You guys know the deal calls to action. If you want to keep up with us on social media, you can find us pretty much everywhere. You can type in RageWorks or RageWorks network and you will find us. I mean, we're even on Pinterest as well. If you're on YouTube, we do put our episodes on YouTube And yes, I know some people are like, "Ugh, podcasts on YouTube. But guess what? There are still a lot of people that are sitting in offices that block everything except YouTube. So those handful of people that are enjoying the podcast via YouTube, we're looking out for you. We appreciate you. And we'll continue doing it until, obviously, YouTube changes its mind and doesn't want audio with stationary images shared shared on its platform. Uh, I doubt it's going to happen, but... You know, we got to put that out there. If you want to be a guest on a future episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, you can email me rich at rageworks.net or you can visit the Rageworks network site and fill out the form there. Share a little bit about yourself, your story. And if it's a good fit, we will have you on an 
episode. So definitely do that. And as always, we're always in the in the market to partner with great podcasts and add them to the network. So if you have a show or are working on a show and would like to have some good partners to work with, definitely hit me up again, rich at rageworks.net. And uh, who knows if it's a fit, you may be part of the Rageworks family. Simple as that. And that's it. That about wraps up this week's episode. Uh, it definitely was a little longer than our usual uh, one hour broadcast, but man, Lots of good stuff this week. John was awesome. Glad to share his story. I'll catch you guys in two weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm out of here. Peace. Toys and Tech of the Trade is part of the Rageworks Podcast Network, your source for rants about gaming, entertainment, and the works. Visit us at RageworksNetwork.com.